First, you need to work on your continuous improvement culture, and this needs to happen before even thinking about investing in technology. You know, continuous improvement, once, once it's baked into our culture, then view technology as a tool in the toolkit, and every manufacturer should be looking for the right tool for the job. Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76. So let me kick things off today by asking you this. Does technology have to be all or nothing? Do we have to either be on the Industry 4.0 bandwagon or off of it? And is it possible that in this increasingly data-driven manufacturing environment, we're losing sight of the value provided by human input? Today's guest has drawn on his career experiences to build a solution that tackles this issue head on. Martin Cloak is the CEO and co-founder of Raven.ai. Raven.ai's platform delivers increased profits and 10x plus ROI to top global manufacturers by guiding actions with real-time insights. Martin is an experienced executive, an award-winning technology and entrepreneur with a background in manufacturing, data science, IP and operations management. Martin holds multiple patents and is a mechanical engineering and business graduate from McGill University in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Martin, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Martin, you've, you've got a great story about how your software, Raven.ai, came to be, and in particular, how your experience in sales earlier in your career at blinds to go influenced your decision to build this company. So I was hoping you could kind of start out by explaining what Raven.ai is in the first place for listeners, and also to tell us a little bit about the journey that influenced your decision to create it. Absolutely. So, you know, at a, at a high level, we help manufacturers produce more efficiently. I mean, I can get into some of the details here, but, you know, fundamentally, if manufacturers can understand what's happening, what has happened, it's much easier to take actions to improve performance in the future. So, you know, we help manufacturers make sure they know exactly what's happening at their plants. And then we also help them take action. So, you know, at the core, it's it's not that complicated, but, you know, it was very much influenced by my, my early experiences working both in tech and, and in manufacturing. No, that's great. I want to quote something you said in an article that you published late last year on LinkedIn. So you said, getting excited about manufacturers being data rich is like going on and on about how much paint Pablo Picasso had in his studio. Our obsession with data is making us forget who and what actually provides value. I think this was a really interesting and powerful statement. I'm just wondering if you could unpack that for us a little bit. Yeah, for sure. And, and maybe what I can do is I can kind of frame it within my experience that caused me to, to found Raven. You alluded to the fact that I, I started off my career at Blinds to Go. So, yeah. you know, my background is in high tech. I, I am at the core a, a high tech, you know, engineer and entrepreneur. And, you know, I graduated from McGill University in the early 2000s, you know, and tech and uh, telecom had actually, you know, there wasn't as much activity in telecom and I was recruited by Blinds to Go, which is kind of not what I had expected to go into, but it was a pretty neat offering. And, and uh, you know, Blinds to Go, I'm not sure what, what, what part of the country are you in? I'm in St. Louis, Missouri. So okay, so I'm not I'm not sure if Blinds to Go was actually all the way out to St. Louis, but it's an East Coast manufacturer with a hundred plants and really innovative way to look at manufacturing kind of holistically. And one of the first things that you know I did when I went to work at Blinds to Go is they got me to sell blinds in a blind store. 
which was a really, you know, somewhat shocking, but kind of ingenious way to, to, you know, connect people to the reality of what it is to work in manufacturing. So you know, here I am, graduate from McGill, McGill University, you know, full of confidence, which, you know, I think that's what they give you when you go to McGill, thinking that I know, you know, know how the world works, being sent to a blind store in Totowa, New Jersey. And, and the idea is you work in a blind store until you get good at it. And once you get good at it, then you get to come back and work in the plants. So I just remember, uh, you know, calling my wife within the first couple of days there and saying like, what's going on here? I'm an engineer and, and I'm selling blinds at a retail blind store. So anyway, as, as it started to go and I started to realize, you know, a couple of interesting things. First off, from a sales perspective, if somebody walks into a blind store, they're there to buy blinds, right? So you, you should be able to then, you know, work with them and get them to, you know, buy a blind, which, which I realized pretty quickly. But the second thing was to really understand, you know, what is the impact on, on your customers if there's a quality problem? You know, it's at some point in manufacturing, we see quality problems as a number, but, you know, you I remember those cases where, I mismeasured a blind and it came back to the customer and they say, you know, you know, you screwed it up. And 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 really as as and on the retail side to to live that first firsthand experience of what you know the, the user experience of is of manufacturing, it it changes how you perceive those numbers. If something's late and your customer is asking for this. So that that was really a, an interesting experience to sort of show me what the consumer side of manufacturing was. And I had never worked in retail sales, you know, I'd worked tutoring math. So then after that, I went to work in the plants and I did all sorts of roles in, in, in the plants from quality engineer to product engineer. And one of the first roles I had was as a production supervisor of a couple lines. And again, you know, full of that McGill confidence, I thought I knew what manufacturing was, you know, I, I'm going to get my Excel file and I'm going to optimize the process. And it's going to be, I had this one particular Excel file that I really liked. It was, a, it was an awesome file. I, I think it was about six or seven megs, which at the time opened quite slowly, but it had all these neat, you know, it was a pretty neat file. And I was also playing with data from Cognos, which is interesting because, you know, one of my main advisors was one of the key people at Cognos before acquisition here. So anyways, I had all, had all this data and I was seeing all these things. And at some point I went to my, my plant manager and I said, Hey, you know, can you look at my Excel file? I think I, uh, you know, I'd like to show you. And he says, Martin, he says, yes. Do you know the names of all 200 operators at the plant? And he's like, I said, no. And he said, well, I, I want you to memorize the names of all 200 people in your plant. And then and then once you've done that, you can come back and, and I'll look at your file. And I'm like, what? Okay, so anyways, I was still at the stage where, you know, I, I begrudgingly listened to him. And then I, start, I started, you know, spending more time on the shop floor and then realized that just by walking around, it was clear where the problems were. Somebody would ask me to help with a certain machine or they would ask for help or something. And I just see stuff as, as a, like a natural problem solver. And then what I realized is that the way to drive improvement in my lines wasn't with my Excel file, was by walking around, asking questions, looking at the process. And so my day morphed from a day that was more focused on you know, analysis in Excel where I was basically walking laps around the plant. So my morning would start, I'd get there at 10 to 7, and I'd meet with some of my team leads. And then I, I, I'd go and say good morning to all my operators. And they say, oh, good morning, Mr. Martin, because I was, I was in Montreal. So, you know, Mr. Martin was my name. And, you know, I, I would notice something. I would thank them for coming in, and they'd ask me to do things. So then I'd walk around, and, and at some point I had close to 50 operators at the plant. And, you know, it took quite a while. It almost took me to first break to do that first pass. And then I'd go, I'd go to break with them. And then after break, I'd go, I'd maybe go sit down to my desk because I absolutely had, you know, some duties to do there. But this method of just walking around and right now, I, apparently, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's called management by walking around. It, there's actually an acronym. And if you, you can see it on Wikipedia. So, so sort of my, my perception of, of manufacturing was 
completely different going into it you know, after have, you know, working it you know, firsthand. But one of the things that I was frustrated with was the fact that I moved completely away from the data. So I moved from data centric to people centric and I didn't, I didn't do anything with the data, but that was, I was able to drive, you know, improvement in my lines just by being there and solving these problems. So yeah, I, I'm not going to go on a, on a 10 minute monologue here, but that was kind of, you know, setting the stage for, you know, the reason why I, I founded Raven. You know, my perception of manufacturing before getting to the shop floor and after getting to the shop floor are completely different. So, you know, here, you know, after working there for a few years, I, I kind of got a sense for what it took to provide value to my operators to, you know, I, I think the way that the way that my, you know, I perceive it is, you know, if I can basically as a supervisor at the time, it's my job to solve problems for my operators. What, what my operators are doing is pretty clear. Keep the machines running, and I need to walk around, find those problems, and fix it. You know, in in some ways, the success of any business is not related to whether or not you have problems. It's related to how well and how quickly you solve those problems. So, anyways, so that was really the my time in manufacturing, which was which is super exciting. And I, you know, as as a competitive athlete, I almost got some of that same feeling on on a shop floor when when things are rolling. It it really feels cool to be part of a team and and to be successful. So anyways, after leaving, I followed my wife to, to Ottawa to, when she was doing her PhD, to, and, and I, I tried commuting to Montreal from Ottawa, which is a two-hour drive, three hours with traffic, and I, I did that for about three weeks, and then I said, you know what, this is... Uh... So then, then I basically, I, I, I put up my shingle and, and started a consultancy, which combined my background in high-tech and manufacturing and started consulting for this little startup scene in Ottawa. So this was uh, 2007. So I got connected to a, a guy named Paul Lem, who's the CEO of Spartan Bioscience. And you should check them in the news here. They, they have real-time DNA testing for COVID testing. So I consulted for, and I, I did some you know, design work for, for Spartan Bioscience. And then there was a small company in town at the time with 10 people called Shopify. And we started hanging out at Shopify's office. And Shopify was doing some pretty cool things. And slowly this group, and we called ourselves, I think, Young Entrepreneur Club at the time, and now it's Fresh Founders. And slowly, this club started doing some pretty cool stuff. So then Shopify started blowing up. And then Paul's company, Spartan Bioscience, started you know, doing really cool stuff. And then we have, then somebody sold his company. One of my other friends sold his companies to SurveyMonkey. And things started going more and more. And this little small group of, of us entrepreneurs in Ottawa began to sort of you know, do some pretty amazing things. And I'm running my consultancy and serving them. I did some work, I get around a company in, in Silicon Valley and, and with another one of the people in the club. And then there's a point at which they kicked me out of the club. So, the, you know, they kind of presented to me that, you know, the lowest form of entrepreneurship is being a consultant. So here I am hanging out in this entrepreneurship club, not really, you know, I guess I'm an entrepreneur as a consultant. And they say, well, it's, you're not, you're not sort of the caliber of, of entrepreneur that we're looking for in this club. And I'm like, really? So anyways, and I'm still consulting for them. And then at some point I started getting frustrated going like, yeah, I think, you know, being a consultant is not really what I want to do. I, I think I want to start something. And I, ha I happen to have this problem that I'm really passionate about solving, which is why don't manufacturers use data? in the way that I think they should use data. So then, so first things first, I go to my buddy, Paul, and I say, hey, Paul, I'm thinking of starting this company in, you know, I think I called it IoT for manufacturing at the time. And I said, Paul, do you think I should do it? And he's like, no, no, don't do it. You're, you're a great consultant. You know, stick to what you're good at. You know, you wouldn't be good at being an entrepreneur. And it's like, ah. So, so, so I, I, most of the time I listened to Paul, but in this case here, I chose not to listen to him. And so then I started up what I called machine telemetry at the time. And really the idea was, you know, how can you, allow for manufacturers to use their data in a way that doesn't take out what's most special about being a leader in manufacturing. And what's most special is the time that you are working with your team 
to identify and solve problems. Any time that's not spent doing those things, I feel is time not well spent. And my frustration back then at how much you know leader time is spent filling spreadsheets, reporting out data is just mind numbing. And you know there, there had to be a better way. And I would say even today, way too much time is consumed by technology rather than unlocked with technology. So I founded the company at the time. As an engineer, I'd always heard that you're supposed to name your company exactly what you do. So I called it machine telemetry because we're taking telemetry from the machines at the time. And then I, I, I met up with my co-founder, Braden, PhD from Institute for Aerospace Studies, University of Toronto, which is where, which is basically, I always say it, it's, it's the rocket science program in Canada. It's the top. So I always say that, and you know, Braden, Braden is the rocket scientist and, and his eyes glaze over when he sees that. So yeah, and the idea here is that, you know, how do we combine the best of technology with actual experience running operations. And that's kind of been the formula for what we've built to date. So I, you know, I, I, we found it, we start to, to, to do some work for manufacturers and I say, hey, Paul, you know, because I'd always go back to Paul, my buddy from Spartan Bioscience, check it out. And he says, oh, it's pretty cool. You should raise some money. He says, oh yeah, let's, let's do it. And he's, but your company name sucks. <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, machine telemetry is the worst name ever. You know, you should name the company Raven. And I said, why, Paul? <laughs> so, and, and he was telling me with regards to the company name, like nobody's ever going to want to say, hey, the guys from Machine Telemetry are here. You know, so he said Raven because Odin, the Norse god, has these two ravens, Hugin and Mun, and uh, they fly around the world getting information for him, which is kind of what you do. And I said, boom, let's do it. You know, so we changed the company name, reached out to some of my buddies who are, you know, now quite successful in Ottawa. And they're like, this is, this is you know, really cool. And that kind of started, you know, we raised, raised some money and we've raised a bunch of money since from effectively this, this network that, that we've had from the start in Ottawa, you know, that's now basically given back and supported our community. So, so anyway, so, so I think, you know, as mentioned, so we, so we raised some money and, and really the, the formula that we, you know, we had, we've had for building the business to date is really by combining the best that modern tech has to offer with a, you know, deep understanding of manufacturing, you know, and, and we've built that to date. So for example, you know, on our executive team now, we have Rob Lander, who was president and CEO of Stackpole International, billion dollar publicly traded auto parts manufacturer, who, who spent his career you know, transforming manufacturing operations. So for us, it's really important to have that, you know, the core understanding of what it takes to transform manufacturing. Because in some ways, the people aspect of, you know, change management is the same. People are the same. You know, technology has advanced, but we haven't. And, and really, that's been the formula for, you know, what we've done so far. And now, you know, we serve global manufacturers from Sanofi to Danaher uh, to Hitachi, you know, and effectively, it's it's really with the same vision that we've always had, which is, how do you provide you know, a clear understanding of what's actually happening, which is a, a pretty big challenge, and I can get into that later. And then once with this information, how do you provide it in a way where they can actually take actions to improve? And you know, the gold standard for application of modern te you know, technology, in my mind, is you know, Waze or Google traffic. So you think about how this technology basically cuts to the chase. It doesn't dominate your attention. It doesn't, you know, drown you in dashboards and, you know, constantly needing to, you know, you to look at it or interact with it. On occasion, it provides guidance. If you listen to that guidance, you will perform at a much higher level. So that, that is the gold standard. You know, we're not quite there in manufacturing yet where there is a place for dashboards and, and, and other than reports. But but really, that that is the value that, you know, technology can provide, which is to help to identify problems and make it easier to solve them more quickly. 
Yeah. And just to clarify for listeners, when you said Waze, you're referring to the the app, right? That That's right. traffic app that where the input comes from both, you know, real data, but then also, you know, like traffic data, but also the input that people are physically providing by typing into the app, right? Absolutely. And now, now the way that it works is it gets data from your car and from traffic. People contribute data. But one of the core things is that data needs to be accurate. Mm-hmm. If that data is not accurate, you know, no matter what you do on top of that inaccurate data, you won't be able to provide good good guidance. One of the biggest challenges today is that, you know, in, in the industry 4.0 or in, in manufacturing today, there are tons of companies out there providing analytics, maintenance software. Now, many of these systems rely on the data that's fed into them. And this data is, you know, has been collected from machines for decades. But the most valuable data is to understand when the process is not running. When the process is not running, the way to get it is typically through manually entered methods. You know, either somebody writes it down, types it in Excel, or pulls a drop-down menu. So all of these systems sit on this, this rickety structure where you know humans are entering data into the system. And the fact that they're all sitting on top of this means that data quality is one of the biggest issues that has has people haven't emphasized. So half of the problem with many of these systems is, is data quality. And the fact that you know, these other systems with analytics and dashboards are sitting on top of this poor data quality, people get burned. People get burned by getting pointed in the wrong direction. And what happens when you get burned a few times? You get disengaged. So you have these systems that almost, that exist to present metrics that people don't trust on the shop floor. And then at the core, people are going back to doing what they've been doing for 30 years, which is you know managing their day-to-day based on instincts. So to solve the Industry 4.0 challenge, you need to make sure that it's sitting on a foundation of good data and then once people have confidence that the data is trustworthy, how do you give them a tool to, to allow them to take actions to identify and solve those problems more quickly? Yeah. So you you really are bringing together kind of the best of both worlds there. Like what are some ways that just to try to make it tangible for listeners here, what are some ways that, you know, your tool Raven.ai harmonizes the best of, you know, the data being collected from machines and the human input? Well, at the core, I think what, what makes it really clear is that our clients work with us because they get a return on their investment. So there is a cost. You know, our technology costs a certain amount, so they need to see that return. So, you know, and what delivers that return changes based on where they are in their evolution. So an example, we survey a Danaher plant in, in California, you know, large, large organization. And as I mentioned before, one of the biggest challenges is to know what's happened. So this particular plant had an issue where machines that were producing goods were down for a long period of time for unknown reasons. And if you were to look at the machine data, it would highlight the fact that they are down because they're broken. So you know, at, at a high level, the machines are broken. What do you do to address broken machines? Well, maybe you get engineers to try to make the machines run more smoothly, right? But what we saw when we deployed our technology was that when a machine breaks and goes down, there's actually three different segments of time. So there's the first segment of the time where you're waiting for maintenance to arrive. The second one, you're fixing the machine. And the third one, you're waiting for the operator to come back. So those three different segments of time require different things to, to resolve. So you know, when we finally sliced it up and, and, and showed them, it, it was shocking to see that they were losing 600 hours, machine hours per month because of waiting for maintenance. And this is not that they didn't have maintenance staff, or it was just you know a slight misalignment of their schedule. So one of the amazing things is that the first time you see data presented accurately, the types of things that you need to do to drive gains early on are often mundane. 
And so in this case here, you know, they, they reduced their waiting for maintenance downtime by 90%, resulting in, you know, significant OEE gains. And, and if, if you were to see what they're actually doing on the shop floor, it is not revolutionary. It just comes like, this is the kind of thing where if you were to define this problem and give operators, you know, this is the problem, this is your team. We're, we're spending too much time waiting for maintenance. Like they know how to solve this problem. Right. All you need to do is, is and we don't solve problems. We just we just present them to people who know how to solve them on the, on the shop floor. So one of the exciting things is that, you know, often the kinds of things we see early on are, you know, you're spending too much time waiting for maintenance. You're spending three times as much time as you should on setup. Your machine stops and starts way too often. So there's tons of early gains as soon as you, I guess, in some ways, just flick on the lights for the first time. Mm, no, that's, that's a really good example. You know, it's the, the data alone doesn't tell enough of the story, you know, without the human input, right. And interpretation of what, what it actually means. Absolutely. And, and I think at some point here, you, you'll, you'll notice that I, I never use the word OEE or all these other metrics here. Cause at some point the problem was they are spending too much time waiting for maintenance. Yeah. So let's, let's eliminate that problem. And there's so much talk, you know, the conversation about Industry 4.0 and, you know, IIoT and AI cloud and all this kind of stuff here, it's so far removed from, you know, supervisors and maintenance leaders having a conversation about what kinds of things they can do together to reduce how much time they're spending waiting for maintenance. So in some ways, the most effective Industry 4.0 projects right now aren't called industry 4.0 projects. They're called continuous improvement projects or not even projects. It's just part of continuous improvement. So for that particular example, like in none of our communication where we're mentioning smart manufacturing industry 4.0 cloud, that wasn't there. You know, like Danaher has continuous improvement baked into their culture. They are looking for practical ways to drive gains. And, you know, we're happy to be a tool in their toolkit to, to support them to, to make these gains. And that's effectively what Industry 4.0 is. It's not a movement. It's not this big transformation from one way to another. It is a pretty neat tool in the toolkit, but that's not the narrative that's presented, you know, on social media, not on LinkedIn and all that, or, or even in, in boardrooms from, you know, large manufacturers. In another one of your articles on LinkedIn, Martin, you referenced a Deloitte study that showed how labor productivity in manufacturing had been growing very consistently and rapidly from like the late 1960s until 2007 or so. And then since then, despite turning on what you referred to as the real-time data firehose, that productivity has stagnated. And it was surprising for me to see this. I'm curious if you could you know talk about why that has happened yeah it, it was it was pretty shocking to see this was by deloitte and mappy okay. uh, an organization a manufacturer organization doing a study of labor productivity and and it's it's almost like the moment the iphone was released you know productivity growth basically flatlined but really the the thing that changed was this appetite for real-time data so up until that point you know, we've always had data you know uh, in manufacturing in particular you know data is just a fundamental part of our lives but the way we consumed it was in a a manageable amount we would see performance you know once a shift you know as mentioned before I, you know we would spend our time walking around so you know you'd see your your daily shift report you'd internalize the problem that you're trying to solve and you go and try and solve it so what you know as technology advanced with the cloud and, and IoT and, and access to all this data the way that we implemented you know solutions very much you know sort of copied our KPI report centric view of you know how to drive improvement so you know rather than changing how you know how we perceive how we should use data we simply took a report that we used to see once a shift and just made it live so the way you know i would say the way we were used to using data is once a day you get a report now when you flip to real time 
if you make reports real time, there's a couple issues. One, often with the once a day reports, you have people getting in there to actually make adjustments so that the numbers are, are trustworthy. And the second one is our reports and KPIs typically aren't an effective way to, to guide action. So, you know, you go back to my Waze example, Waze is not a series of dashboards and KPIs. It's simple instructions that tell you how to avoid traffic. And I think that's a, that's a big difference here. So, you know, whereas we have this, this technology that's a lot, able to collect and present tons and tons of data in real time, our capability to consume data is still, still quite low. So, you know, how do you, and I think we've struggled with this change that has, you know, impacted the two things that I mentioned earlier, which is data quality and engagement, you know, projecting a, or presenting a dashboard in real time that has questionable data that's not directive is not helping people on the shop floor take actions to, to drive improvement. So, but at the same time, you know, there's been this movement over the last 10 years to invest in technology. And there's been this, you know, companies are investing massive amounts in, in pilots and in different initiatives, often very, very large initiatives that are disruptive organizationally. So in many cases with these, with these implementations, the most complex part isn't the technological part. It is change management. So by taking these systems, which just are fundamentally flawed and are not helping, you're actually disrupting organizations and creating disengagement on the shop floor, which does not help, you know, nurture and improve a, a continuous improvement culture. So, you know, if I were to think of the, the formula for manufacturers, big or small, if, you know, to, to deploy this technology properly, first, you need to work on your continuous improvement culture. And this needs to happen before even thinking about investing in technology. You know, continuous improvement, once, once it's baked into our culture, then view technology as a tool in the toolkit. And every manufacturer should be looking for the right tool for the job and should be very you know, wary of tools that, you know, if the team is rejecting your tool, there's probably a good reason for it. So the, the second thing is that Often, you know, because of the big, the scale of how industry 4.0 is presented online, everybody thinks they need to go big, where the reality is that the best way to deploy this kind of technology is to deploy quick and small and manageable and accelerate and, you know, double down on success. And, you know, it's amazing to see on, on LinkedIn when anybody posts something that shows a whiteboard. So somebody is really proud of their whiteboard. And they say, hey, I made a KPI whiteboard. Check it out, LinkedIn. And then people jump all over it. So there's the old school folks that say, this is the way to go. It's so connected to the operator, it creates engagement. It's it's like, it's perfect. And then there's the, the tech folk that go like, no, what are you guys doing? You're stuck in the 70s or stuck in the 80s. That's not the way to do it. When when the, the reality is they're they're both right. So one of the things that whiteboards do that technology often doesn't do is that it takes the operator and the production team along for the ride. So you start, it's white. There's nothing there. You come up with a concept. If the operators or anybody makes a suggestion, you can just you know take your whiteboard tape and draw something new. And it, there's this neat way to create engagement and involvement with the people who are actually using you know the the technology. The operators, you know, if they don't see value in it. You know, if, if operators don't see value in these systems, you're off to a bad start. So like the way that operators benefit from technology, if the technology applies pressure to their leaders to fix their problems. So the great thing with whiteboards is, is it takes them along for the ride. Technology is likely a better way to implement the end state, but it misses that journey to get to that end state. So what we've seen with our clients is, is that you can get the best of both worlds by starting with an extremely simple and basic implementation and take the operators along for the ride 
as they're beginning to, you know, request complexity. So we're, and, and you know, the first phase is what is happening? And in some ways you can even create, like if you're thinking of how to categorize time, if you categorize time in nine different ways, let's just categorize time in nine different ways and let the operators push for added complexity. So once you know what's happening, then the next thing is, you know, what has happened, what's happening? That's kind of like the basics. And then the next phase is why is it happening? And as if you take operators along this journey, then your maintenance team and your supervisors and plant managers are along for the journey. And that's how you actually integrate technology into your continuous improvement culture by coming in with this end state, which may look the same and saying, implement this now. You've missed that part that actually you know, creates that connection and glue between technology and continuous improvement culture. And without that connection, it just doesn't fit. It's all really, really good stuff there. Martin, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you want to add to this conversation before we put a wrap on it? No, I, I think we covered it all here. And yeah, it's it's uh, it's an exciting time in manufacturing. I think over the last year, with all you know the turmoil and change brought on by COVID, you know, manufacturers are are talking about digital transformation in Industry 4.0 more than ever. I think there's a lot of talk, a lot of concern. There isn't a lot of uh, practical guidance for you know, manufacturers showing them how to actually take action here. So I think if, if I were to sort of sum it up to, to one thing here, you know, it, you know to, to start off with Industry 4.0 for any size manufacturer, the best approach is to start quickly, start small, start simply. And with that foundation, and this is with your operators, and with that foundation, double down on success and accelerate. If you start too big and you start from the top down, it's just going to you know, be on the scrap heap of, of failed industry 4.0 projects and kind of continue the pilot purgatory that's been going around for, for a while now. So I would also say that you know, there's a huge appetite for this technology. It, it hasn't necessarily, the solution hasn't been articulated in a way that's resonating with plant managers, but in the same way where you know, there was an Uber moment where people you know, would never jump into a car with a stranger to saying like, actually, it's okay. I'm going to jump in a car with a stranger because they just got that value prop just right. You know, there's going to be that Uber moment in manufacturing where manufacturers recognize that this is the way that they need to run their operations to actually keep up. This is the way to do it, you know, twice as efficient and spend half the amount of money. So there's that Uber moment coming when people are going to realize and, in you know, because of how simply this technology can be deployed nowadays, it's going to go quickly. So it's exciting to kind of see that coming. I'm not sure exactly what's going to trigger that that moment, but it's definitely conversations like this where you know we're talking about practical applications of Industry 4.0 are, are going to help us get closer to that. And, and it's ex- definitely exciting to be in, in this space at this time. Martin, great conversation today. This was really valuable. I think we're going to have a, this will be a, a very popular episode. So I really appreciate you doing this. Can you give our audience a sense for how to get in touch with you and where they can learn more about Raven? Yeah. So the main way to get in touch with me is on LinkedIn mm-hmm. uh, and now on Clubhouse. You, you got to check us out on Clubhouse. Industry 4.0 on Clubhouse. It's going to be uh, pretty awesome. Beautiful. And then raven.ai is the URL for your software. So that's right. All right. Well, fantastic. Martin, thanks again for taking the time to join me today. Really appreciate it. And then for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of the Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com slash learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.